Hello, I am Joshua P. Warren, and this is Joshua P. Warren Daily. And you know, I've been appearing on Coast to Coast AM for many years, since back when Art Bell was the host. And over the years, as the Coast web presence has developed, the most indispensable member of the Coast online family has been webmaster Lex Lonehood. He's also been the most mysterious member of the Coast family. Until recently, I've never even seen a pic of him, and I was even surprised to finally learn his last name is Nover. Yes, Lex Nover. Now, we've worked together on a variety of online content and public chats over the years, and almost even met once when I was traveling, but uh, it didn't work out, so I was delighted to see he is coming forth a bit more by publishing his first book, this fascinating new book called Nightmare Land, Travels at the Borders Between Sleep, Dreams, and Wakefulness. Now, it's a big one by Penguin Random House. As a matter of fact, the website for the book is nightmare.land. Ever heard of a dot land before? Yeah, nightmare dot land. <laughs> Who is Lex Lonehood Nover? And why did he choose to write Nightmare Land? Well, we're going to find out right now. Lex, thank you and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Joshua. It's a pleasure to be on your, on your podcast. Appreciate your having me on. Well, you know, as we mentioned uh, off the air, so to speak, you've had me as a guest many times over the years, and uh, it's a delight to be able to now have you as my guest. And, you know, let's get right to the basics, Lex. Uh, where are you from? Uh, I grew up in the, in the Midwest, uh, but I actually spent most of my adult years in California, uh, living in uh, San Francisco for around 17 years and uh, San Diego for five so, and you're uh, in now Florida I, now. Now I live in Florida, so I've kind of hopscotched around the country. Okay, so when people meet you and they say, what do you do? What description do you give? What do you do, Lex? You know, it's funny being the so-called webmaster is, is something that people often think of as, as very technical, like you're some kind of behind-the-scenes guru. And indeed, I, I know how to... Uh, spin a JPEG around and, and that kind of stuff with Photoshop. But primarily what I've been doing all these years with Coast to Coast is acting as a writer and curator, really working on the content of the site rather than uh, crafting the, the back end nuts and bolts and coding and that kind of thing. So one thing I do on a regular basis is write up a recap or summary of the show. So I'm, I'm more or less on duty during the uh, live shows when I'm working and kind of listening and compressing and finding highlights. And uh, it's always been a pleasure when you've been a guest on the show because you bring interesting nuggets that, that are easy to, to recap. Some, sometimes guests are, are very abstract and will just kind of go out to the, <laughs> the farthest reaches, if you will. And uh, while it can be fascinating to listen to, it can be a little tricky to sort of bring it back down to earth in, in paragraph format. So uh, that that's, uh, gives you a little bit of a flavor of, uh, of, of what, what I um, do as the web producer at Coast. Yeah, I've always been fascinated by how well-written these summaries and, and synopses are uh, because I can tell when some of these guests get on and they just kind of go all over the place, you or whoever else is working on writing that summary is really doing a good job of condensing everything very tightly. And so uh, that said, what has been sort of your professional journey? What have you done throughout your life that led you to this opportunity to work with Coast to Coast AM? It's, it's pretty circuitous. Uh, my uh, degree was in radio, TV, film, so there is some connection there, but it was in the era before the Internet even existed. And uh, in sort of my early years in San Francisco, I was uh, making a name for myself as a, a, a performance artist and photographer and visual artist, so that was a very 
creative period for me. That's where I was using the Lone Hood moniker. And then um, around the mid-90s, I ended up getting a grant from the San Francisco Chronicle, who was just kicking off their website, SF Gate. And I got a grant to create a web magazine, uh, which was called Offbeat, that uh, celebrated uh, the creativity and eccentricities of San Francisco. And so that kind of got me running in terms of, of learning the ins and outs of uh, creating web content and still being sort of in the art and uh, creative world. And when that grant ended, uh, they hired me on to be a freelance writer. I was doing a column for them called uh, Flipside Adventure, Adventures in, uh, in Low and High Culture. And I got a similar gig like that working for Microsoft Sidewalk, which was uh, kind of a city uh, publication they were launching in different cities at the time. And so at that point, I, I embarked on a career as a freelance writer and moved to New York City for a few years. And it was also when I started writing for After Dark, which was the magazine publication for Coast to Coast. Uh, Lisa Lyon and I uh, started working pretty closely together on that, and I was really one of the main writers for that during the tail end of the Art Bell years. So around um, 2002, when Art announced his, uh, his retirement, or one of his <laughs> retirements, and they had hired George Norrie to take over the show, that's when uh, I got the gig, because they were looking for a new person to run the website for George. So it was uh, a little bit of a, um, a, a long path, but uh, uh, it felt like the stars really aligned, because it, it's been an amazing dream job to to have all these years. It's been 17 years since then. Wow, that's amazing. Well, you know, b before we dig a little bit deeper into sort of what a typical day is like for you, you have one of the coolest names in the world, Lex Lonehood. Let's go back to that. You, you said that that moniker was formed a little early on. Okay, so is your name Alex? Or, I mean, like, how did, how, tell me about the name Lex Lonehood. How did this develop? Well, it, it developed um, from the idea of being kind of a stage performer, which I guess is, is pretty familiar to, to you as well, being out there as a personality. And I was doing uh, these sort of short performance poem pieces that had kind of a theatrical nature where I was playing different characters. So I was kind of seeking out a name that was a little larger than life and, uh, yeah, Alex, uh, Lex is short for Alex, and uh, Lonehood was just something I came up with that seemed to kind of fit me. And then as I was progressing along with these different things I was mentioning, that was the name that people knew me as, so I just, just kind of kept it along for the ride. And so what is a typical day like for you with this weird schedule that you have to keep working on the largest overnight radio program in America. You know, living on the East Coast, it's super nocturnal. I'm, I have a very <laughs> vampirific schedule, even though I don't sleep in a coffin. But um, the show airs live here from 1 to 5 a.m. So I'm doing some work before then, kind of off and on uh, during the day and evening, depending on, on what's needed. And then after the show airs is when I'm primarily working on the, the recap and just kind of finishing up some different content things for the website. So um, that takes, uh, you know, an hour or maybe an hour and a half, depending. And then I don't necessarily go to bed right away because most people, when you finish your shift, you're, you don't necessarily just plop right into bed. So I might not go to bed till like 7 or 8 in the morning. And so I'm really sleeping during the day. So, uh, yeah, it's, I guess it's the graveyard shift. So but, when you uh, listen – I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think the schedule – while you don't get uh, – you kind of cut out your mornings and lose a little bit of activity along those, those lines, it does give, give a person freedom to have their evenings – 
because when I lived on the West Coast and was doing the show, uh, that would really cut into your evenings more when the show airs at 10 and you've got to be back earlier to, to set up some stuff. So it has, has some advantages. Yeah, you know, it's funny because now that I'm here on the West Coast, it has become more difficult for me to fit coast-to-coast AM is, uh, into my schedule as well because when I was on the East Coast, frequently I would have you know a full evening and then I would take a nap or something and, and then get up and do the show when I was going to be on as a guest. And now, I mean, it's like, holy cow, it's time to go on coast already. It's very weird. So now when you listen to the show – uh, I, I, I'm, I'm assuming you listen almost every night. Uh, are you just sitting there taking notes the whole time? I mean, is that what, what? I mean, do you have to listen that intently to do this summary, or and you're sort of breaking it down as it goes along, or what's that process like? You know, there's this amazing technological gadget that has been super helpful to me over the years. It's uh, from a company called LiveScribe. Don't mean to turn this into an advertisement for them. But what it is, is a, it's a pen that has a video camera on the end of it. So I take notes as, as the show is airing live, and then it's, the pen is recording the audio. And so when I click on a particular part of my notes, it will play back the audio for that. So it's a great way to get direct, accurate quotes and, and not completely tear out your hair or non-existent hair in my case <laughs> trying to you know catch everything so that that particular device has really been a godsend for me in terms of of, of getting uh notes and uh quotes that's amazing i you see i've never heard of that and well that helps to explain why that sure enough every quote that i've ever seen in a coast summary is dead on so <laughs> Uh, the miracle of technology, right? What would we do without <laughs> it these days? Um, so, Filling all my trade secrets. <laughs> <laughs> You're finished now, Lex Lohan. Um All right, so now here you are uh, with this sort of amazing and unusual career uh, working on projects that have you know, an intellectual side, a creative side. And at what point did you decide that uh, you wanted to squeeze a book into this? Well, it's something I had been on my mind for for quite a while, really. I, I was um, working on more nonfiction type projects over the years, like uh, screenplays and uh, theatrical plays and different things like that. And um, I just just felt like um, n- now was a good time to perhaps uh, experiment with uh, non nonfiction and combine a lot of the interests that I had from topics that have been on coast to coast over the years. And uh, the stars just kind of aligned to, uh, to make that happen for me. So uh, yeah, it's, it's been, been a real thrill and uh, just an exciting project to sink my teeth into. I really love the research aspect of it and being in this sort of more mature era of the internet it's just been this amazing tool for research and just to dive into things that um, have been scanned like old tomes from the 19th century and then going all the way up to reddit boards and things um, just that are very current so you really have this huge panoply of material to to dive into so I think that made writing a book in this era a lot easier than the pre-digital uh, age or even the early days of the internet when there wasn't that much material that had coalesced online yet. So this book, Nightmare Land, Travels at the Borders Between Sleep, Dreams, and Wakefulness, is so good. I mean, I just went and looked at the Amazon page, for example. It has nothing but five-star reviews. And, you know, I had the honor of, of reading this book before it came out, and the depth of research here is astounding. And, and, you know, before we get into this book, though, let me just ask you, given your background as a researcher in general, when it comes to working with Coast to Coast AM or, you know, any of the various things that you're doing online, in this day and age, what are your standards for how to trust a certain news source? I mean, that's a big issue 
how, how do you know? I mean, like, what 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 makes it into the legit territory for you? Well, the coast-to-coast attitude, which I, I've adopted in terms of the work for the website, has been pretty open-minded in terms of the guests and, and just letting them have their say. And what I've tried to do with the recaps is to create this sort of journalistic um, backlog of a database, really, where people can go and, and read about what these guests had to say and different different highlights and to really be able to look at look at it objectively we try to present what they had to say without making any kind of editorial judgment in terms of we have a section called in the news that i curate where we pick out like five five stories a day and yeah for that kind of thing i I do try to pick things that i find to be more reputable um, other other times I might post something and just, you know, in my mind it's a question mark. But what I think we've always tried to do with the radio show is let the listener be the judge or the viewer in the case of the website. We don't want to post inflammatory material or objectionable stuff. But other than that, you know, to let people approach these things with an open mind and, and make a decision themselves as to how they view it or how true they think it is for the book. I, I definitely wanted to have footnotes and show my sources. So there's, even though I hope it's, it's written in a very readable style, it, it does have a little bit of an academic quality in the sense that, yeah, I'm, I didn't, <laughs> I'm not making this stuff up as, as outlandish as and strange as some of the, the tales are. Well, in fact, um, just looking again at the Amazon page, there's a description here I want to read. It says, The sleeping mind is a mysterious backdrop that science is just beginning to shed light on. It was only some 60 years ago that researchers discovered REM, the rapid eye movement cycle that's associated with dreams. In Nightmareland, Lex Lonehood Nover travels into the eerie borderlands where the unconscious, dreams, and strange entities intermingle under the cover of night, revealing wider and hidden aspects of ourselves, from the savage and frightening to the astounding and sublime. Encompassing accepted medical phenomena such as sleep paralysis, parasomnias, and ambient zombies, and the true crime casebook of those who kill while sleepwalking, to supernatural elements such as the incubus, alien abduction, and psychic attacks, Nova brings readers on an extraordinary journey through history, folklore, and science to help us understand what happens when we sleep. So, Lex, the obvious question here is, have you been plagued by nightmares throughout your life? Luckily, I've not been plagued by nightmares. I've had some of the things that other things I've written about, like uh, sleep paralysis, lucid dreaming, uh, some weird hypnagogic episodes. So one thing I uncovered really is just how common a lot of these so-called sleep disorders are and that there until recent years has been kind of a culture of secrecy and shame around a lot of this stuff where people don't want to talk about it or are fearful that people will think they're crazy and a lot of it is really pretty normal or just not that unusual that people have have these kind of experiences. What about you, Joshua? Yeah, I am an extremely vivid dreamer. Uh, every night I dream, and often I even think I'm dreaming before I'm fully asleep, and uh, sometimes I think I dream for a few seconds after I wake up. Um, I do have nightmares at least once or twice a month but i tell you the thing and and, I, and maybe from doing this research people are asking you now to try to interpret dreams and all that but for me one of the most pronounced themes of my dreams and i do often lucid dream uh but one of the most pronounced themes is frustration there's all i'm always frustrated in my dreaming now i know I, I wouldn't say a hundred percent of the time but i'd say about 85 percent of the time uh, so what do you think that means? Do you have an interpretation of that? Well, I could say a couple things in that regard. Uh, I ran across in my research that about two-thirds of all dreams have a negative 
cast to them. And that did make me wonder as, as to why, why is there a preponderance of, of more negativity in the dream states? And my own pet theory about that is kind of similar to what you're saying and this frustration that I often experience that's usually around trying to find something that I misplaced or go back yep. somewhere to get my shoes or something like that. And my interpretation of that is not so much that it's some kind of Freudian interpretation or, or even something that's a psychological thing, but that it has to do more with the fabric of the dream reality itself and this idea that we're just kind of spooling out this story as we go and things, it's kind of a makeshift reality that's, that's very different than, than our waking one. And so, for instance, if you travel from one place to another in your dream and then you want to go back to point A and you're at point B, that point A doesn't even necessarily exist anymore because it was just sort of made up on the fly. So that, I think, is one of the frustrating elements because generally if we're not lucid, we don't know that we're in a dream and that could lead to that sense of frustration. Like, why can't I, or, or for instance, like cell phones never work <laughs> for me in dreams. And because they've become like a, the fifth appendage, uh, they, they crop up every now and then. So I, I thought like that should be a cue for lucidity when, <laughs> when your phone won't work. So, um, so d does that uh, relate at all to your, what you were describing about the frustration? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's funny because even when I'm having some kind of a fantastic experience, like I'm flying or something like that, uh, I'm even sort of struggling sometimes in, in the flying part. I'm thinking, why should there, you know, if, if my imagination is taking me on this journey that allows me to fly, why should there still be some kind of like aerodynamic restrictions on it? And it, so given everything that you've learned, um, and, and of course, we're going to break this down a little bit more into some specific areas, but uh, what is the purpose of dreaming, in your opinion? It's a good question, and I, I don't think that there's a definitive answer. There are different theories that have kind of gone, risen in popularity. The Freud stuff about wish fulfillment seems to be out of vogue these days. And I think the more recent one is this idea of emotional processing, which I, most of the theories, you feel like there's a kernel of truth to them, but it doesn't seem like they, they completely are accurate either. So um, I, I think the jury is really out on that. I think also the idea that dreams could be very different in terms of it's not a one-size-fits-all experience. Some dreams are kind of boring and repetitive, and other dreams are just epic and something you'll remember for your entire life and super meaningful. So there could be different purposes for different dreams. So I don't know that there's, there's a specific uh, purpose evolutionarily um, it, it does seem like a very odd state, and I, I, don't, I don't think the science or medical community has really pinned down any, any specific need that, that, it, that it accomplishes. So, so it's, it's uh, a mixed bag. <laughs> well, okay, well, uh, what do you think is the purpose of sleep in general? Well, I think that there is more medical and scientific evidence of restoration that a lot of different things happen during sleep. And, and maybe some of that is included in, in the REM state, but different um, things that the brain is processing with memories and uh, clearing out different hormones and a whole, a whole set of, of things. I didn't, didn't look closely at that in nightmare land, but I think that that's something that, that there is some solid evidence that, yeah, we need, <laughs> we need sleep and it accomplishes a whole uh, X, Y, Z of, of different uh, functions. You know, I recently uh, did one of these podcasts and I was talking about Randy Gardner uh, and he is the guy, according to Guinness book, who has the record for going the longest documented that a human has gone without sleep. Uh, this was in 1964. He was a teenager 
and he stayed awake for 11 days and 25 minutes. And, um, you know, he, he started to hallucinate a little bit, but, you know, at, at the end of it, he did a, 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 a press conference, and he spoke okay, and supposedly he was able to play ping pong and all that. And um, he, it didn't seem to do any long-term damage. He's still alive. He's around 70 years old now. And yet I think I've read somewhere, and I can't find the exact source to this, that, that rats in lab experiments have been kept awake until they have died. Uh, do you know anything about that? Did you get into that in your research? That, that sounds familiar about the rats. I, I actually did write about the Randy Gardner case. It was kind of mm -hmm. fascinating. There's a clip you can watch online where he was uh, one of the contestants on To Tell the Truth, and the panelists had to guess which was the fellow that <laughs> had done the uh, sleep deprivation uh, world's record. This was, I think, shortly after he, he did it in 1964, so it's kind of a, a fun thing to watch. And an interesting side note about that, a New York Times reporter went to visit him, I don't know, five or ten years ago, and he complained of having insomnia almost every night. So <laughs> I, it's probably not anything to do with the experiment that he, he did 50 years earlier, but it seemed like kind of a a funny little uh, ironic note. Um, I lo also look at in the book something called fatal familial insomnia, which is a rare genetic disorder where the part of the brain that governs the ability to fall asleep is, is damaged. It's like a, one of those prion diseases like mad cow, uh, which affects different parts of the brain, and they end up stuck in this netherland, neither really awake or asleep, and that goes on for about six months to a year usually, and then they die. So there definitely is something to the idea that if, you're, if you don't get any of what's called deep or slow-wave sleep, you, um, you can't continue living, really. You know, if I watch, say, a program on the Discovery Channel with snakes right before I go to bed, well, then it's understandable that I might go to sleep and dream about snakes. But on the other hand, I might have the second part of the night, some dream where I am in this incredible sweeping mystic land that I think I could never imagine with orchestral music playing that I could never imagine. And I'm saying, where does all that come from? So, uh, and I know that your book is about nightmares and not just dreams, but still, um, when one sleeps, I know there's a certain amount of sort of processing what happened from the day, but do you think that there's a part of us that actually leaves the body and experiences some kind of a uh, parallel realm? I, I think that's a real possibility. I've, I've wondered about that because some of my dreams have almost, I don't know what you'd call it exactly, kind of like a multidimensional quality of different elements that seem to go beyond or are different than the, the normal sensory experiences that we have in the waking world. And the problem with that is when I wake up, I have sort of a glimmer and memory of it, but it doesn't translate back into waking reality. So that has made me wonder like, okay, where am I exactly when I'm experiencing these things that can't even really be described in, in the waking world? So, yeah, I mean, is, is it the so-called astral plane? Are, are we in some other kind of etheric existence? It, it's hard to, to pin that down. Certainly there's a lot of bizarre experiences around things like sleep paralysis that can be related to or correlate with out-of-body experiences. So that's kind of getting into that territory of out-of-the-body of out travel. You know what's funny is, and I'm sure you of all people can relate to this, um, you're a very curious person like myself, and so I'm one of those people who, if I take out my computer at bedtime and I start reading some article, then I start clicking the links, and then I, you know, and then I click that link and that link, and the next thing you know, I'm down a rabbit hole. And um, uh, months ago, I ended up reading about John Carpenter films. And uh, that brought me around to A Nightmare on Elm Street. 
And then I started reading about why that he created the character of Freddy Krueger and how that was based on real reports and all this. And then I swear to God, Lex, like two days later, your book arrived in the mail. And I'd never known that information about how that was formed. And I opened it and I, I said, Lauren, that's my wife. Lauren, look at this. <laughs> this is like some crazy synchronicity that you, you wrote about this thing that I had just been reading off on a whim. And it's so creepy and spooky and I think embodies part of what makes Nightmareland so troubling. Would you mind sort of uh, giving a brief overview of, of sort of why that John Carpenter used these stories to create Freddy Krueger? Well, I think you mean Wes Craven. That's I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. Wes yeah. Craven. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So it's, it's a really kind of fascinating connection and I think highlights the connection between horror and nightmares and a lot of this weird stuff like sleep paralysis, just as a little side note. Um, Mary Shelley actually was said to possibly be in an episode of sleep paralysis when she got the idea for Frankenstein. And there's a whole kind of history of different literary and artistic people that seem to have gleaned different things from, from odd sleep or nightmare states. But in terms of um, where Wes Craven got his inspiration, in the early 1980s, there was this uh, bizarre case of young Southeast Asian immigrants dying um, un inexplicably. It was called uh, SUNS or Sun Unexplained Nocturnal Death Syndrome. It was mostly in the LA and uh, Southern California area. And when people started looking into it, it had to do with these young men had episodes of sleep paralysis and one thing I uncovered was that uh, the sleep paralysis lore, if you will, is known all around the world, but each culture or country has their own mythos around it and kind of creates their own supernatural figures that are associated with it. So um, some of these immigrants were from Laos and places around there, and they believed that there was a dem demonic entity called Dachau. And it was thought that um, if they didn't honor their spiritual traditions, such as doing things like animal sacrifice, that this demonic figure would visit them in, in this kind of quasi-dream sleep state. And so when uh, these families moved to America, a lot of those traditions did drop away. And what happened was, I think that they would have a sleep paralysis episode, and then having one episode made them more paranoid that another one was going to occur because that was sort of the lore of, of what um, they believed back, back in their home country. And so there were a number of cases of these men just dying and people would, he family members would hear these sounds coming from the room and before they could even get in there, they would be dead and have this kind of strictured expressions on their faces. And there was like a whole number of cases of it. It was really quite shocking because it was like the number one cause of death for people at that age, because it wasn't common for people to, to die that young in, in that area. And so Wes Craven uh, read some accounts about it in the LA times. And that's um, kind of what triggered the whole idea for him of, of Freddy Krueger this um, uh, kind of demonic figure that can get inside people's people's dreams and nightmares. Really, I think one of the last classic horror horror icons that's been been created. Um, what is also interesting about the case is this uh, professor Shelley Adler uh, did some research a few years back, kind of reinvestigating it, and what she uncovered was something she called the nocebo effect, which is kind of like the evil twin of placebo. So it's this idea that if you feel like something horrible is going to happen, in this case, uh, these repeated sleep paralysis episodes, it kind of is like a self-fulfilling cycle that someone can get sucked into. And then she also found that 
uh, most of these men had this rare hidden condition called Brugada syndrome, which is a, a heart defect. So she concluded that it was the combination of the nocebo effect and, and this hidden heart problem that uh, had done in all these, these young men. See, that's just downright creepy. You know, I mean, that is the fabric of nightmare land when you start thinking about stuff like that. And as a matter of fact, you know, just looking here at the table of contents, chapter one, sleep paralysis, chapter two, parasomnias, chapter three, sleepwalk murders, chapter four, sleep deprivation, chapter five, the nightmare realm, chapter six, hypnagogia, chapter seven, psychic attacks chapter eight the alien in question chapter nine lucid dreaming i mean you know we could sit here all night and just hit these points and just talk and talk and talk but here is the thing that people bring up most of all and you know this listening to coast to coast am for years and years and years everybody seems to call in all the time and ask about what we often call the old hag now, what's the, what's the story behind the old hag syndrome? Well, like I was mentioning, different countries or locations seem to have their own myth or lore built up around sleep paralysis episodes. And old hag is mostly associated with Newfoundland, that uh, area in Canada, where people would say something like, yeah, I had the old hag last night, and people would know instantly what they were talking about. So it's kind of a, a shorthand and even the expression haggard or haggard might uh, stem from from that experience. It's just over the years, some of these um, expressions or words, their, their original meaning gets lost. In fact, the word nightmare itself meant up until um, at some point in the 1800s actually referred to sleep paralysis. So the, our current definition of nightmare is really pretty recent. Um, and so, I mean, what's the scientific explanation for what's going on there when people have that experience? They would say that it's uh, basically a neurological glitch that you're having uh, your REM states intruding into your waking state, kind of an out-of-order sleep cycle. Typically, when, when we fall asleep, we go through about three or four stages of this deep or slow-wave sleep. And then the REM cycle after that, and then it repeats a number of times throughout the night. So the explanation is that somehow if a person is sleep deprived or um, just kind of out of sorts in a way, they might be more prone to having this, this out of order experience and that somehow their, their body still has the paralysis that's associated with REM, which is pretty much a helpful thing for the most part so we don't get up and start acting out our dreams. So that, that has always made some sense to me that this, this is a carryover in terms of how, why, the, why is the body paralyzed. But the actual experience of seeing these entities does not seem like a dream. It, it's quite palpable in terms of you're seeing your actual room, your bedroom or wherever you're sleeping and then to see some kind of entity that's forming or that's in your room is quite a strange experience. There um, is one theory that I ran across recently that takes a little bit of a different tact than the idea that it's some kind of bleed through dream state, which makes a little more sense to me. And that's something that's proposed by a neuroscientist named um, V.S. Ramachandran and it's this idea that the body has its own, uh, the brain rather, has its own vision of the body that it uh, kind of like a homunculus that it holds in the mind and that when during sleep paralysis, if all the limbs can't move, that somehow the brain is creating this, this kind of double because of the odd condition that it's in and is somehow projecting that outwards almost kind of like a phantom limb sort of thing so i thought that that was an interesting interpretation or something interesting to consider but basically you have these really parallel tracks of a kind of neurological or medical explanation 
and then uh, supernatural explanation. One one thing that's uh, I found rather intriguing in, in looking at a lot of these cases is that some people wake up to an entity that's already like on top of them or interacting with them. It's not more commonly when people see an entity, they'll see it kind of arriving or forming in the corner and maybe coming closer to them. But in these other cases, it's sort of like they're catching this thing like in progress. And there's a sensation that whatever this being is, is feeding on them in some way and is really rather surprised (laughs) to see them wake up. It was sort of like they thought they had carte blanche to do whatever it is that they were doing. And uh, I explore some of those cases uh, at length in the psychic attacks chapter. Is that you something know, talk, that you, that's ever happened to you? Well, not no. I, I, unfortunately, uh, I, I, I want to make that clear. Fortunately, I have not had the old hag syndrome, and I have never woken up and had you know some entity there sort of sucking my energy. But here is the synchronicity that we're dealing with here. Less than a week ago, Lex. I received a call from a woman who was in her late 30s who has been a friend of my family for decades, basically since you know I was pretty much a kid. And she had never contacted me before to report anything, but she had such an experience that she said, you know, you're the only person in the whole wide world I can talk to about this. Everybody else will think I'm nuts. And she proceeded to tell me about an experience she had, which actually was not that different from these similar reports I've gotten over the years. I won't say they're common, but I've heard this sort of thing multiple times. Here is the gist of her story. Um, She lives by herself in a house that is too big for her in a creepy secluded part of the woods and she had just started to drift off to sleep and all of a sudden she heard this bizarre combination of sounds on the property she heard something like the gravel sort of shift in her driveway at the same time she heard her front door open and close and her toilet flush okay all this happened at the same time she said it gave her cold chills to even think about that moment she thought i don't know what's going on somebody's breaking into my house or whatever and then all of a sudden she 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 jolts up she bolts up in bed and she sees this figure in this case it was sitting on her bed in other cases the figure standing by the bed but it's a cloaked figure with a a big hood. And uh, she said that she was absolutely petrified. And she said that this, it was so striking to her because it was so visually solid. And that she said something to the effect of, you know, who are you? What do you want? And it wasn't responding. And this went on for a while. And so finally, she just reached out to touch it on the shoulder to nudge it, and her hand passed through it, and she realized this is a spiritual entity, and at that point it disappeared. Now, other people who have talked to me about this kind of thing say that these are entities that often show up with a cloak and a hood, and they just come there to sort of silently feed off of your energy uh, and I don't know if you would say this is similar to a succubus or an incubus, but um these beings might, and I don't want to freak anybody out here, but they might be coming around into your bedroom at night more often than you realize. And so that said, Lex, um, how, how do you feel about these types of stories and the idea that some of these beings might be nourishing themselves from our dormant energy while we sleep? Well, it's, it's fascinating to ponder. I, I've wondered if there is some kind of hidden ecosystem and that while it could certainly be parasitic, I wonder if, if it, it isn't even that, that it might be more of like a symbiosis. Maybe we're just giving off excess energy that that's part of uh, this thing that nourishes them and just this whole kind of system that we don't see going on kind of kind of like how dust mites feed on our skin uh that kind of thing but uh in terms of these encounters 
one thing that was kind of a through line in, in the book was this idea that we, when you when you're just falling asleep and just after waking up this this hypnagogic state uh, which I include both the just about to fall asleep and just after waking up might be a type of mixed brain waves where we could have access to communication that we normally wouldn't have or would be turned off when when we're going about our normal waking world because it does seem like a lot of these ghost-like encounters seem to happen while just after someone wakes up for instance or these crisis apparitions where someone will get a visit from their grandmother and then find out later that she had died around that same time and it, there does seem to be this association with someone just waking up to discover that. So that made me really wonder if there was this corollary brain state that allows us to be able ex to experience these kinds of things. You know, this book that you wrote, it's over 300 pages. It's, it's so in-depth. It's so well put together. It's so comprehensive. I can see why it has nothing but five-star reviews. What do you want to see happen with this book? Uh, that's, a, that's a question I hadn't, <laughs> hadn't really uh, considered. I, I did try to write the book in, uh, to have a little um, bit of mainstream appeal and not just have it be of interest to people that follow the paranormal and so I, I would like it to, to reach a little bit of a wider audience, I think. And uh, I don't know, maybe you can talk to some of your friends at, the, <laughs> at those cable channels to see. I think it would make a really cool documentary series because a lot of these things are just so visual that yeah. I think it could kind of lend, it, lend itself to that. And, uh, and in terms of the audio, there's also a really great audio book I got to – have uh, input on the casting, and uh, Neil Helligers does the narration of it, and uh, it's got this almost like Rod Serling quality, and uh, it just it's very entertaining and spooky. So uh, for people that that don't necessarily like to read that much these days, the the audio book's really pretty kick ass, if I do say so myself. And of course, again, nightmare dot land, nightmare dot land. I have a few questions I want to ask you before we uh, we have to wrap up here. Um, given your awareness of how technology is progressing and all of the you know cutting edge developments that are coming, and obviously you're a guy who has a great imagination, what's your opinion on the role? that uh, AI, artificial intelligence, is going to play over, say, the next 10 years? Well, it's, it's hard to fathom. I've certainly pondered, uh, will, will I live long enough to be able to have my body, my consciousness <laughs> transferred into a, into a slick new body? But uh, in terms of the technology thing, it's not necessarily specifically AI, although the definitions of AI can be loosely applied in, in different ways. One thing that fascinated me in, in the lucid dreaming research were, were these different contraptions and masks and things that I've experimented with over the years, but they don't seem to have it quite down yet to make it practical and reliable, but there's this research out of Germany where they were zapping people, uh, lightly zapping people with uh, gamma waves. And that actually brought about lucidity in about 70% of the test subjects. And these were people that weren't even in the lucid dreaming community. And so the idea that that could be made into a, a product that uh, people could just wear uh, kind of a, on their forehead rather than a sleep mask, I guess, that really intrigues me because I think lucid dreaming just feels like this amazing gateway and it feels like a really viable alternative for people that don't necessarily have good luck with meditating, that you could have a lot of interesting spiritual experiences as well as a lot of really entertaining and, and, and just delve into things in, in a really in-depth kind of way and kind of 
dive into your subconscious. So that's that's one thing I'm 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 hopeful about and wondering if they'll perfect the the technology around that. But generally speaking, I, I'm kind of excited by uh, a lot of, of what they're doing in terms of the gradual merging of uh, our bodies with more of the machine and AI processes. I think it, it can really open up new possibilities for us as a species. What do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel that we are seeing more and more every day that there is less of a distinction between what we have traditionally thought of as organic versus inorganic. Um, that reality is looking more and more like a computer model. You know, we, we used to call it holographic. I think we can call it holosentia now. We, we can create holographs that people can touch and feel. And when it comes to the nature of reality in general, you know, I am, I lucid dream probably at least once a week. And uh, it's been that way for many years. And I recently bought one of these masks, like a sleep mask, that is designed to help you lucid dream. Not that I needed much help, but it's weird because it has a little light that pops on at certain intervals during the night, which is supposed to remind your brain, hey, you're, you're dreaming now, have fun with this. And I just kind of found it distracting because, it, I mean, it, it, it worked for a little while, but then it just wake me up. Um, and when, when you, you, you start looking at sort of, you know, the way we view this experience that we're having versus the experiences that we have when we dream, and then you start applying that to the model of, well, reality itself, what is reality and how subjective all that is, you, Lex, you know, you've listened to all these experts from various points of view for many, many years give some kind of insight. Um, if you had, like, an unlimited budget to do some kind of a grand experiment, is there one big experiment that you would like to see done that you, uh, you think hasn't been properly done so far? Ah, that's that's a mind-boggling thing to to play around with. I may have to get get back to you mm-hmm. <laughs> on that one. I, I you've you've been quite the the experimenter. I've really admired a lot of the the different things you you've played around with. Can I turn that question back on to you? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you know there are, well there are plenty of things. I mean, I think that probably the holy grail. Um, is time travel. It's a Pandora's box. It's going to open up a, a, a big can of worms. But I, I really believe that we are getting closer and closer to the possibility of um, producing some kind of a time travel experiment, which may not be physical time travel, but at least, um, I don't want to say mental necessarily, but information time travel. In other words, that we're able to look back to see into the past and I think we might be able to do that by studying some of these natural anomalies that exist and then reproducing them in the laboratory and so one of the ways I believe we can do that is by uh, taking extremely high-powered lasers and turning them into basically what amounts to a Tesla coil or some type of a a transformer made out of of light and fiber optics but uh, hey Right now, you, you know, just, just that uh, made me think of uh, something to partially answer your question. You know, there's rudimentary research going on now with the brain, and they've been able to just depict in these very simplistic ways what people are seeing in a dream. So, if that could be super enhanced, it would be yeah. really interesting to get these like. Uh, uh, videotapes of your of your actual dreams because it's so hard to often remember them that would be like a really interesting thing to like oh i'm gonna go see what i dreamed last night that would be yeah talk about astounding i mean that that's the foundation for a movie screenplay right there and uh, and i I think it also would be horrifying you know some of your nightmares (laughs) seeing reliving those things so um this may seem like a, a bit of a silly question, and maybe th- there's, there's no real solution to this, but um, how do I know that as I'm talking to you right now that I'm not dreaming? 
Well, we can't say for with absolute certainty, but one thing that is a, a cue towards lucidity is something called a reality check. And, mm-hmm. and what you do with that, there's a number of different ways to do it. I, I like to do it with text or numbers. So I might you look at something posted on the wall or a street sign, and then you look away, and then you turn back to whatever that text was you were looking at. If the text remains the same, you're not dreaming. If it changes, that means you are dreaming because that fabric of the dream state we were talking about before is this kind of shifting sands sort of thing. And so it won't reproduce the same text or numbers after you look away. So that is a good way to tell that you're dreaming. Uh, So the idea is if you do that with more and more frequency, that that practice that you do in your waking state you'd start doing that in a dream state and and then you'd see like wow <laughs> that's freaky this those numbers those numbers just changed there's also something that fascinated me is is called dream yoga which is really like an ancient practice amongst uh, tibetan monks and that is sort of exploring the idea that our waking state is more like a dream than we realize. So they're, they're trying to look at our waking world as being like, like a dream and then looking at our dreams as, mo- as more uh, um, through lucidity, looking at those as being more like being awake. So it's, it's a weird uh, balancing act. Okay, I'm going to remember that <laughs> because I, I am one of those guys who, I, I swear to you, sometimes I will have a dream within a dream. This happened to me two nights ago. I had a dream within a dream, and I was so relieved when I woke up and realized that all those were dreams. So, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah talk about you know the rabbit hole, the infinite mirror, you know, two mirrors – uh, facing each other that create that infinite tunnel. I mean, there's something about what happens when we sleep and when we dream and whether or not it's pleasurable or it's a nightmare or whatever that tells us something very deep-seated about ourselves and our connection to reality in general. Uh, we're almost out of time here, so uh, let me just ask you uh, to take the floor and uh, sort of tell Everyone listening here, anything you'd like about uh, how to find your book or other projects you have coming up or anything else that you'd like to promote, the uh, floor is yours. Thank you, Joshua. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. And, yeah, you can visit my website, nightmare.land. It has some more information about the book and and where to get it, uh, which is available on Amazon or or a lot of libraries are picking it up, which is kind of a thrill. So uh, contact your, your local library if, if you uh, like to get ebooks and uh, audiobooks books that way. And uh, just one, one little um, extra thing that I didn't get a chance to me- mention that, that was a fascinating thing that I learned from my research was the idea that we are always dreaming in, in the sleep state, this non-REM or a slow wave sleep that I was talking about. This is something that really surprised me, that that state is not without content. There, <clears throat> there is um, storylines, not as narrative as the REM dreams, but there's always something going on. And that uh, threw me for a loop because I, I thought, okay, there's sleep. We're just out like a light bulb. But this idea that there's always this stuff going on, and we have almost no memory of that. So, uh, and that's a state where people sleepwalk and have a lot of those strange parasomnias. So they could be having their own internalized content that's that's kind of playing out as they're walking around doing doing these strange things in this this half sleep state. So. Something else creepy to contemplate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, this book, Nightmare Land, is so good. O- honestly, uh, everyone listening, you really have to go uh, to nightmare.land. Look at the options. You can, if you want to, to read it or if you want to listen to it, you know, you heard Lex say there's a great audio book out there. Uh, you've got all these options, but it, it's, it's uh, every review, five stars, every review. 
five stars. And uh, gosh, we could go on and on. I could talk all night, but uh, Lex, the clock has got us. But you know, throughout all these years, you have always been the best at what you do. And though we've never met in person so far, I consider you a trusted friend. You're breaking new ground. You're opening minds. Uh, And so I, on behalf of many, sincerely thank you for what you do, and uh, I thank you for being on my program. Thank you, Joshua. It's been a real treat. All right, folks, there you have it. Lex Lone Hood Nover. Lex Lone Hood Nover, Nightmare dot land the book is of course nightmare land and uh it's okay it's okay to read it before you go to bed you you'll probably it might even help you a little bit it'll let off some steam nightmare land travels at the borders between sleep dreams and wakefulness all right my friends that's it for this edition of the podcast You know, it's called Joshua P. Warren Daily. If you go to joshuapwarren.com, you'll find a link to this podcast. Always short, always free, commercial-free, independent, uncensored. You can subscribe through various means or just follow me on Twitter at Joshua P. Warren, at Joshua P. Warren, and I will usually tweet when a new one is available. So thank you for listening. Thank you for your interest and support. Thank you for staying curious, and I will talk to you again soon.